when any of us takes a lower paid job for a big company or、uh, anyone, you're not only hurting yourself, but you're hurting everybody else. If the client isn't fighting with you, you're not charging enough money. I feel like back in 2013 to 2015, we were talking about the pivot to video. It's crazy to think about that, but that was now almost a decade ago. That's insane, Jenny. It that is ridiculous. And yes, since so much has changed, so much has changed, but yet it's still kind of like the wild west in terms of what people are paid. Don't you think? Absolutely, and the whole field of video journalism, and frankly. Documentary, whether it's short or long, I mean, it's a complete free for all in terms of what people are paid for, what, how, like, what is a producer? There's so many definitions, and no one really has the answers, and so, you know, there there are no standards yet. Yeah, we're also in this in we're in a weird place as video journalists, as documentary filmmakers, because we obviously love what we do. A lot of us would probably do it for free.、Mm-hmm. This is an art form, and we love it. But it's also highly skilled. Not everyone can can do it, and and those skills obviously deserve to be compensated. And we need to make a living, and that is what this episode is about today. Yes, that's so well said, Jenny. I mean, with the video consortium, at least this community really represents the intersection of doc and journalism, and the folks who are doing both, because there is this merging right of nonfiction storytelling, and so. In journalism, you know, we're beginning to see some movement. In doc, I see. I think it's a bit more、uh, like farther behind. But all over, at least people are starting to have these discussions, and we're also beginning to see a bunch of spreadsheets that are swimming around on the internet, aren't we? Yeah, most people who have listened to this have probably at one point seen a spreadsheet where everybody anonymously lists their pay, their years of experience, what they do. And that's kind of been everyone's unofficial guide to what they should be asking for. Maybe if they're taking a freelance gig or if they're, you know, accepting a full-time job offer. But I think that there should be something more official. Me too. And hence, the Video Pay Transparency Project was born. <laughs> so there has been a group of VC members, journalists, and filmmakers who have been working really hard、um, over the past. Frankly. When we started talking about it, I believe it was in 2019. Rebecca Davis and I, and、um, finally, we're starting to bring this project to life. And it's one step forward, but the idea behind it was to create an official place where people in video journalism and doc can go to find rates and、um, transparently see what people are paid and for what roles. And it's its own website, correct? Yeah, and the idea is that it is it functions kind of like the spreadsheets that have been swimming around. In that, you know, it's user generated. In that, there's a form to add your own rates, what you're paid at which companies and for which roles.、Uh, but then you can also see what everyone else is paid. And the idea was to create a place where people could go back to to see、um, to see this kind of stuff transparently, and also to like look, you know, at X Y Z company. Is there a Latinx female? Producer who's paid a very disparate amount from a white male producer for the same role.、Mm-hmm. I mean, who knows? You know.、Um, so the idea is to also get that that aspect of of、um, compensation as well. 
Yeah. And uh, three of the people behind that project are on the show today. Rebecca Davis, she sort of formed the short doc digital strategy for NBC. And later she was at Vox and now she is freelance. Um, we also have Leah Kayata. Um, she has been freelancing for a decade. And we also have Javier Briones, uh, who is a freelancer out in San Francisco. I'm really excited to hear the conversation that y'all had about this and their very frank opinions, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, it's great to kind of hear from both sides. I mean, Rebecca can provide the perspective of someone who has hired freelancers a lot um, and negotiated rates. Leia and Javier can talk about being on the other end of that. So I think it's a really useful conversation for really anyone, whether you're freelance, whether you're working at a company, when it comes to pay transparency. Absolutely. And as you listen to this interview, listeners, it would be wonderful if you could input some rates that you've recently uh, charged for at pay.videoconsortium.org. And we will link to that in the show notes. And um, if you could, if you could also send it to a few film or journalism friends that you have, the more the merrier. I mean, the idea is to build this up to help each other. With that, this is Rebecca Davis, Leah Cayada, and Javier Briones, and you're listening to Rough Cut. If you could all just kind of go around, maybe Rebecca, you can start, introduce yourselves and talk about your role in this industry and your experience, either hiring freelancers or being a freelancer. Sure. Um, I'm Rebecca Davis. I was a uh, digital video producer, first with the New York Daily News and then with NBC News. Uh, for about a decade in New York, um, and then left um, full-time work in the uh, fall of uh, 20, or actually early 2019, um, and went freelance. Um, I got to work on the second season of Vox's Netflix show, Explained. And then since then, I've been um, working as a freelance video producer um, and documentary director in Washington, D.C., um, and I also teach journalism at NYU. So my name is Leah Kayata, and I'm the founder of Pushpin Films. I've had a production company. I've been sort of a freelancer. I feel like these two things are kind of one and the same some, sometimes uh, since I graduated 10 years ago. So that's freelancing is all I've known. And with my production company, I'm both hired on one-off projects and also sometimes just on a day as a director or an editor through my production company, I also find myself hiring a lot of freelancers. So it's really interesting to be in that sort of both ends of the spectrum. And then with my company, I'm right now mostly focusing on feature documentary projects and then on the commercial sides, working with art galleries and art institutions. That's pretty much all I'm doing in the last year. Um, yeah. Hi, my name is Javier Briones. I am a um, documentary filmmaker uh, based in San Francisco, California, and I also own an independent production company called 32K Productions. Uh, and very much like Leia, I am in both spaces um, as a freelancer, sometimes hired by other production companies, and as a person who has to negotiate contracts with clients and has to then hire uh, people to work for me. Cool. Leia, if you could start by telling us just because, as you mentioned, you've been really, you've only been a freelancer and you've been doing this for a decade. Can you talk about 
what you're considering when you are uh, negotiating a, a rate with a client as a freelancer and how that's changed, if it has changed over the last 10 years? Um, yeah, I think when I was starting, I was really grossly underpaid uh, and accepting rates because, you know, I didn't have much experience or no experience at all professionally under my belt. And so I was in this weird position when you're ready to accept almost anything. But I think I really quickly realized that actually that's the mistake because I think the clients can really quickly understand where you're coming from. And if you sound like you don't value yourself and your time, it's kind of an open gate for them. Not to say that everybody that has this opportunity will take it. And I've been really grateful in my career to find people who have been really kind and professional and respectful about that. But it can be an open road for people to just take advantage of you. And then the moment you realize that even as somebody who's really green in the industry, you have skills and there are minimum wages and minimum hourly rates that you should implement from the first day you enter this industry and that you deserve that, you'll see that the people in front of you, I have realized that actually treat you with a lot more respect and suddenly value your time a lot more. I think other things that have gone bad is no contracts or badly written contracts or contracts that are too vague, uh, where I think every job, the smaller, even the smallest job you take, you need to have a contract because even if you're not planning to eventually take it to court, what it's a process that forces you and the client to go through all sorts of questions that you need to sort of figure out before you start a project, you know, like how many hours are we talking for this day? Is it eight? Is it 10? Is it 12? What about overtime? Will it be compensated? What about transportation, meals, all these little things that if you don't spend the time talking beforehand, you just get sort of not, you actually don't get any of that once the job has started because it's too late to talk about these things. So I think that's one really good habit I've learned even when you're really in a rush and you have 17 other things going and you don't have time to do it, it's really important to take the hour it takes to go through it. Yeah, I think piggybacking off uh, what Leia say about the importance of actually being really upfront with people about how much things are going to cost and what you actually need. Um, I, I learned from uh, an actually, I went to actually a uh, workshop about money um, for freelancers, which was extremely helpful for me, just not only to learn how to manage my own finances, but to also learn how to charge and how to negotiate. And the one thing that I remember learning is that if the client isn't fighting with you, you're not charging enough money. And that really has kind of stuck with me because people, a lot of people that come to this, uh, to us for work, don't really know how much things cost, right? They have, and maybe they're talking to their boss about, you know, we, we want to do this video project, right? And they assume they set up, you know, $5,000 budget aside. And that seems like a lot for that company, right? Because they don't understand how much things actually cost. And then when they actually talk to you and tell you that they want a drone and they want three days of shooting and they want three different asset videos and you're like with $5,000, that's actually not really going to work. Um, and so I think like Leah, it, it is important to really outline everything from the get go about how much things are going to cost. Cause also nobody wants to be surprised, right? Um, 
And I think now as a company versus being a freelancer, one of the things that's also interesting that I've had to learn is sort of how to negotiate then uh, what it means to run a company, right? Overhead, insurance, um, paying somebody to to go pick up the equipment. Um, and then I think for us as freelancers, we also kind of need to take that into account when we do our freelance work, the fact that we are charging not only for our own health insurance, for our accountants, for our lawyers, for people who write up the contracts, um, but then also for scouts and also for having, you know, one-on-one -on -one meetings or two-hour meetings that the client is being paid for salary-wise, but we are not. And I think explaining that off the top of the, off the top is really, really important, especially if you're like, okay, it's going to be a 10 hour day after a 10 hour day, it's this much money. Everyone needs to take an hour break, right? At least one hour for lunch and two 15 minute breaks. That's California law. And you have to explain all of these things um, right off the top of the head. But if you don't know that right away coming into this industry, it's not a thing that anybody a wants to talk to you about and B school doesn't teach you. And unfortunately, this is how you get into a process where you make a lot of mistakes really early on. Hmm. Rebecca, I don't know if you had anything to add before I ask a follow up to that. Yeah, I mean, I think just the one thing I'll add, which, you know, I, you know, went the way I think sometimes people in this industry, you might start as a freelancer and then go in house. You know, I went the direction where I was first in house with a company and have now jumped to the freelancer side. And you know what I think I had the luxury of knowing starting in-house and then going freelance was that a lot of times a rate is not set, you know, and there's a lot of kind of this game of chicken that happens between who is going to name the rate first. And often inside companies will encourage the freelancer to name their, their rate first um, to match that in the chance that maybe their rate that they're going to name is, you know, lower than the possibility of what the company might offer. Um, you know, and I would see a lot of times inside um, you know, someone could, uh, you know, bid for a job that we were looking for a freelancer for, and they could say, I'll do it for 500. Someone else could say, I'll do it for a thousand. And we would say yes to, you know, both of those, those offers. There often wasn't, you know, a set rate for, for what the work, um, you know, was valued at. And so it really, a lot of that gets washed out in that negotiation process. And that's where it's, you know, really important, I think, then for, for freelancers to know how to advocate for themselves and then to be, you know, armed as, with as much information as possible as they're going into those negotiation processes. I actually have one question for you, Rebecca. Um, while there were no set rates, was the rate a factor in deciding whom to hire? Um, you know, I guess it would probably be, you know, it could work both ways, you know, either if, um, for whatever reason, maybe someone was trying to keep the budget low, um, right. maybe they would go with the lower person and it would mean they felt like they had more money to spend on things like, you know, drones or other types of things. Um, but, you know, I also sometimes think there's the thing that when someone values themselves, as you were saying earlier, Leah, before to charge more, um, you know, you can't help it as a producer than think, well, they're charging a thousand. Their work must be that much better. Um, and that's what I can say. I did not always notice a difference in the quality of, of the work um, as people were pricing themselves. Um, you know, the $500 pricing person you know, by, might be a much better shooter than the person that had come out the gate, like my day rate's a thousand. 
Um, so the rates that people were coming at us with didn't necessarily, you know, match match the quality of, of their work either. And that's again where the advocacy for yourself as a freelancer, um, I think, becomes you know really important to know the value of your work too. Hmm, definitely. And in terms of what Javier was saying earlier about all of the little things you may not think about that you need to factor into your rate, I'm wondering if there's any other things that, like in the beginning, were overlooked that anyone who's listening to this podcast who's starting out should really consider when setting their rate. And that could be either physical things like like gear, or it could be something like time set aside for meetings, or even just like sending emails. There's all those little things that, that add up. I think it really depends which uh, position you're working as. I would say on top of my head for a DP position, Obviously, if there's a lot of gear involved, you're going to need transportation, but sometimes it's a small shoot and, you know, it's just your small camera bag if you don't have a huge camera and a tripod. And I think before I used to just rough it out and just always get on the trains and up and down stairs and everything. Those days are over because uh, <laughs> I need to keep my back, you know, and um, for example, now I I sometimes I'll decide to take a job even if that's not paid for because at the end of the day it's not terrible but I always ask for it I always make sure that's at least discussed um and then also same thing as a DP like do you have to transfer the footage after do you have to take care of drives do you have there's just like you I think it's a really a mindset where and again I think this advice is really valuable for people who are just starting you start and you want to please at all costs and you want to make sure that you've done your absolute maximum. But just remember that if you want this to be sustainable, you need to end up with an hourly rate that makes sense where you can pay rent and food and gear and health insurance and all these things. So don't forget all the extra work that people are not necessarily telling you about, but ends up happening. Uh, I think one of the most difficult things is all these meetings whether you're an editor, this should be counted as part of your day. It's not like a break. Same thing when you're waiting for notes, you know, or uh, when you're in a DP position. That's something that I struggle with because it's, it's, it's a really fine line. You want to, there's always a little bit of prep involved before, but if it becomes too much, then that's a pre-production day. You know, it needs also to be paid for, but it's a relationship thing. I often hire people that I will, only pay only I'll pay them a really good day rate but um there's often conversations happening before but then we have an understanding and these jobs happen over and over again so it's a case by case but I think remaining aware of all these things and making sure it is worth your time and you're not end up drowning <laughs> in you know tasks that are not compensated for is just a general principle guiding principle that should be at the back of your head all the time. I, I think the other thing, you know, people can sometimes forget too, as, especially if the person doing the hiring is, you know, in the luxury of having, you know, full-time employment and being a W-2, um, you know, the American tax code also favors um, full-time workers. So, you know, freelance workers that are being paid by a 1099, um, you know, you don't have a company taking out that, that taxable income and paying into that for your social security benefits. So you're accountable, you know, so as a 1099 employee, you know, right away about 20% of that is taken out, you know, just off the top for taxes. And so I think that's another place where, you know, where freelancers really need to educate themselves as they're thinking about their billing. Um, 
and also where people doing the hiring that ha- you know have to be conscious of another thing that you know freelancers are footing themselves. Um, and also when you're a full-time employee, you know, you, you know, are hopefully lucky enough to get, you know, three or four weeks maybe of paid vacation. And I also think, you know, freelancers should, you know, deserve those type of, um, you know, lifestyles, you know, as well. And so working in extra money as a freelancer to make sure you're, you're saving money throughout the year so that you aren't working 365 days, but you're able to also, you know, take, take some time away from work, um, you know, and take a break, especially when this work is so physically and often, you know, emotionally demanding also. Yeah, definitely. What about hourly rate versus project rate? I know that that's been a discussion I've seen on the VC uh, Facebook group a couple of times, and I assume that it varies versus the type of project, like maybe, you know, commercial versus documentary, but what are your guys' general feelings on, which one of those is better? I would say that definitely it depends on the job, but it's a tricky situation because it, it really depends on the job and it depends on what you're doing, right? If you are working um, just as a day player on a shoot, then of course you want a day rate. Um, if you are working on a much longer project over a period of time where you are maybe the producer um, or the director and, you know, you're quote unquote above the line that can get really tricky. Um, and you can end up really at some point starting working for less than minimum wage if you don't actually average it out correctly. Um, I think especially during the pandemic that happened, uh, you know, to me with a lot of projects that were initiated as a director pre-pandemic, right? I had signed contracts, I had averaged out all of my work and then uh, the pandemic hit and all of a sudden, you know, we had to wait to film. But during that waiting time, there was a lot of pre-production and pre-production was harder to do because I needed to be on Zoom and everything took so much longer. And so when I actually did the averaging math on that, it really was like, I am working at this point for free um, just because of the amount of back and forth that needed to to be done that I didn't calculate correctly. And so I, I, it really depends on the project. I think what I will say, and this kind of harks back a little bit to what we talked about is really kind of just, just, you know, my recommendation to everyone is just go over what you think you will actually need. And then if you come under, right, no one will be upset, right? If I propose a project to a client and I say, okay, look, my fee for directing this thing for one year is going to be $40,000, right? And it's going to be my part-time job. This is what I'm going to be directing for one year. And then I actually don't end up using that amount of hours, right? Say if we're working on an hourly rate, I actually don't end up using 40,000. I end up using 30 and I, they save 10. Like, I don't think anyone's going to be upset about that. But I think, I think it just really, you just really, I think with with anything, both just a flat fee and an hourly fee, you really need to be very, very strategic. Um, an hourly fee can get really tricky because then your client might be like, what are you actually charging me for, right? Are you charging me for like compression time on your computer, right? This is a conversation that editors have all the time. Like I can't use my computer for anything else because I'm compressing all these super large files right now and I have to mine them, right? I can't just like go out and party and then come back, you know? like. 
how many times how many of us have like left something you know running and i'm like all right i'm gonna go do this thing and then you come back with an error message and five minutes of the two hour things that you had to transfer worked right so um i i think as far as just like uh hourly wages versus whole project wages uh, uh, i think that just everyone need to you whatever you decide to do just be really really smart and strategic and really plan out every single meeting that you're going to have how long that and add 20 minutes to that you know basically just add almost 20 percent to any rate that you're going to have because you will inevitably always go over it's never going to be under what you estimate I um I'm actually curious, Rebecca, how you do it as a producer, but I never do hourly um, unless we're at the tail end of a project and there's some extra rounds of edits. But even then, it's sort of a per round fee. Um, I do either by day or by project. But when it's by project that I'm overseeing the entire thing, the budget and, and there is debate around that where some people will say, will actually advocate for sending a price that is not broken down, um, which I'm sure works great. I have found that in the case of what I do, I feel a lot safer actually breaking down the price to the client. This is the price for the DP, for the producer, for the director, for the sound, for the edit, the color, the, all of these things. And then but also telling them this is not a menu, like you can't just take a line out and all the other prices stay the same because that had happened in the past. <laughs> um, so literally on the day of the shoot, oh, we're not gonna do the, ed You're, we're gonna do the editing, just give us the footage. I'm like, mm. <laughs> um, so that's one thing, but what, what happens when you have these breakdowns, it really allows me when the scope of the project changes whether it's an extra day, an extra person, an extra camera, or even the actual end product is goes from, this happened a couple of days ago. We I signed a contract, they signed a contract for a three minute video. It's now a 12 minute script. Um, so having all these things laid out and, and, and saying that it is, you know, not a menu, but a package price, but then it allows you, if anything changed, to go back to these prices and points where things are added and what the rate is that they're added at. Again, so nothing comes at a surprise. Hmm. I usually do a day rate, but then try to specify how many hours in that day, you know, whether it's eight or 10 and, you know, be clear that there's overtime hours so that, you know, you don't end up running like 16, 17 hours a day, um, you know, without... Uh, without stopping for a day rate that you thought, you know, was eight hours in your head, which, you know, I think where Leah was talking about, you know, the importance of contracts, like specifying if you're saying a day, well, what is a day? Is it day eight? Is it 10? Is it 16 yeah. hours? Um, and I think the other thing to keep in mind as a freelancer, you know, if someone tries to book you down to just like three or four hours, that day is essentially pulled off your, your calendar for taking other work, you know, so if someone tries to book you, you know, between 12 and 2 p.m. for a two hour gig in the middle of the day, you know, if another client comes to you, you're not going to have the opportunity to fill in that that other time. Um, so, you know, that's why, you know, for for me personally, you know, if I'm doing kind of like a shooting or producing job, you know, I'm really starting at, at a day rate because, you know, once my time is blocked off and I've driven somewhere, 
Um, you know, and I think this is where it also kind of depends on the case. Our community, um, you know, is so fun because it does encompass so many different people, you know, editors, producers, you know, shooters. And I, so I think this is not the case for everyone. So as much as possible in this chat, you know, I think we can try to specify to the type of work that, that we're doing, you know, so for me, for like DP stuff or field producing, um, you know, day rate does make the most, most sense because of that, you know, that time constraint, if you're going somewhere and you're, you're leaving and there's travel time, you're not going to pick up extra work um, after booking like a two hour gig. So it really needs to be a day rate. Um, that might not be the case, you know, I think for, for editors or, um, you know, animators, potentially, you know, other folks in, in our industry. Yeah. Rebecca, I'm curious your experience, like working for a, a news company and hiring freelancers, setting rates with like, let's say you're hiring a DP in New York or LA or one of these big urban centers where there's tons of people you could hire versus like Arkansas, where there's maybe one or two people, but the cost of living is so much lower there. It's an interesting like economic experiment where it's like you have fewer people to choose from. So theoretically they could charge more, but also it's a lower cost of living. So $500 for a day rate, like in New York, that's kind of nothing in there. That's maybe more fair. Did you take all of that into consideration when you were hiring people like geography? Yeah, I will say we didn't, you know, for the places that I worked, um, we were not getting very much guidance, I would say, at all around around rates. It was really just kind of like a, a bidding war from from people that would kind of come in with their offers. Um, one thing that I think was really important to us, though, as we were putting together um, the the pay transparency project and the survey, was getting that you know geographic data and that location data, um, so we could start seeing you know trends throughout the country as far as you know what rates might be looking like on the West Coast, maybe in LA versus or somewhere like San Francisco where Javier is based, you know, versus New York versus the Midwest, so that you know our hope with this tool is that it's not only helpful for freelancers that are doing, um, you know, uh, bidding on projects, but it, that it's helpful for, you know, people hiring also so that they could go into that database and kind of like take a look at kind of going rates for an area and really get a sense that that those are things we, we should be taking into consideration. You know, cost of living varies so dramatically, um, you know, across the U.S. And that should be something freelancers are, are considering as they're setting their prices. You know, what is the going, you know, rate for rent in that area? Um, and so, so that was, you know, important to us as we were collecting this, this data. I, I think I mentioned, uh, we were on this conversation a few days ago, um, about how, because I live in San Francisco, which is one of the most, uh, expensive areas in the world, definitely in the country, um, our rates tend to be really different here. Um, they tend to be higher than Los Angeles and New York. And so I have sometimes uh, production companies in New York or in LA coming to work here. And um, I immediately kind of have to course correct um, what the going rate is here for specifically for like a sound person, right? Or the hours that are expected of you here. Um, many times I can't even take the job because I am um, I'm busy or I'm already booked on something else. And I will reply, hi, I can't, you know, take the work, but just to give you a heads up, the going rate for this, it costs this much money for 10 hours. Um, and a lot of times, you know, I don't know if that's helpful. Um, I don't know if that sometimes gets me off of jobs, but, you know, I think one thing we all 
realize, and I think speaking back to this uh, pay rate, is that when any of us takes a lower paid job uh, for a big company or uh, anyone, you're not only hurting yourself, but you're hurting everybody else. Um, so if I take a job for a lower amount of money in the Bay Area, then everyone else who is trying to charge a certain level of money can't anymore, right? Because I've undercharged and essentially undercut that that rate. Um, mm. And that doesn't actually create for a sustainable career in this field. And just to add to that, because I think there's two things. It's really great what you said, but and um, one reason people charge lower is because they might be competing for a job and there might be other decisions. Um, is But another reason why that happens also is that, again, people who are just starting don't necessarily know. And so the one thing I would say is just talk to people, talk to people in your industry, in your exact position who are around the same level of experience as you, but also people who are have two, three, five years more experience than you. Reach out, ask them questions, uh, try to get a sense because I think the, the, the survey we're, we're launching is really about giving power to freelancers. So these conversations that are always a little nebulous, that we're always a little uncomfortable having, we have a tool where people can go and get references and understand even to the publication while the survey is anonymous if people are willing they can put the name of the publication they worked for so then you can go in and you can see what are the rates whether they're all over the place whether they're consistent all these information i think it's really exciting for people to have that without necessarily having to also have to knock on doors and ask people for advice because it is taxing and we don't always have the time to do it. Yeah. So now that we have that, it, it's pretty good. It's really exciting. I'm really excited for it. I wish I had that 10 years ago. Yeah, we should. So we should talk about the pay transparency project. How did that come about? Sure. So um, we, Sky and I were talking about, uh, I guess it was the fall of 2019. So a little while ago now, this project's been a long time, you know, in the works. Um, Sky and I had both been um, full-time employees previously at NBC News, and um, that fall of 2019, NBC had just um, won a union election um, for about 200 of their digital employees um, with the you know help of organizers at the News Guild, um, and they were you know one of this you know kind of wave of newsroom unionizations happening. And, you know, a lot of the discussions that were happening, you know, as we were organizing inside NBC, um, you know, was around, you know, the desire for more transparency within the company. You know, we started talking about, you know, pay amongst ourselves as full-time employees and realizing pay was kind of all over the place. Um, and the year previous, the LA Times had just released, um, they had unionized, gotten access to their pay data and released a massive study where they found that, you know, women and minorities inside their newsrooms were being underpaid by sometimes as much as $15,000 compared to coworkers doing the, the exact same job who were white men. Um, you know, so there were discrepancies all over the place and these discrepancies in pay were, um, you know, very much, uh, you know, attached to, you know, things like, you know, gender and race in the newsroom. Um, so Sky and I were talking and, you know, we, 
that had just happened at NBC, which we we're excited about because it was, you know, bringing a lot more transparency to pay in-house. And we were wondering, you know, what could we start doing, you know, now both as freelancers, um, you know, with the VC community to start bringing some of that transparency, you know, to freelancers as well around pay um, as so many of those conversations, um, you know, were also happening in the dark, the same way HR conversations um, happened in the dark inside of companies. So, um, you know, we knew there had been many of these spreadsheets that had been passed around for years. So the idea of this project was not something new. Um, you know, most of us, uh, you know, in the freelance world have probably filled out some of these uh, spreadsheets at different points and then another one circulates a year later. Um, and so in this early conversation, we were, you know, talking about what could we do that would be a little bit more of a living database um, so that the, it wasn't just people that had a friend that passed them a spreadsheet had access to this type of freelancer pay data, but that it would be, you know, public on a website. So if you were a new freelancer and maybe had no connections yet or someone just getting out of school, you know, there would be a website where you could go to access some of this information publicly about um, what companies were paying freelancers. Um, so it started with that conversation with Sky and I, and then um, we, you know, brought this team together. It was myself, um, Leah and Javier, who are on this podcast, um, and also Daniel Sirkar, who's who's not on with us today, unfortunately. And then um, we were able to bring on a, a really talented designer, Peter Liu, who designed um, a really beautiful website um, that is live as of this month, which we're all really excited about. Um, and it is pay.videoconsortium.org. Um, and people can go there and both search rates and also fill out the survey um, about jobs that they've done to help grow this you know, information base. And we hope that people won't just fill it out once, but that they'll continue coming back um, you know, after they're you know, doing new freelance jobs so we can keep, keep growing that year over year. Yeah, it's, an, it's such a smart idea. I mean, I feel like the more that we talk about this, as you said, the the easier it is for everyone. So we don't have to like hunt down like, oh, I know a sound person. Like how much did they charge for this? Like, you know, it's just have it all in one database and just makes so much sense. And I think we we tried, we thought we took a really long time trying to figure out all the different questions to make sure that it would sort of work across positions and we even tried to make it work and I think it does work if it's an entire project and you're a production company versus being hired as an individual for one position. Um, so this is also what's exciting. I think past survey that have been done were very focused either on documentary work only or you know just editing, just post. So here it's it's really an all well all very widely encompassing survey. So hopefully and, and people, it, it will live if people fill it in. And even right now, if you've done three, four, 10 jobs in the last year, you can input all of them in and then keep coming back every time you finish a job. And it's anonymous, which allows to give out the most information, information possible on the job, the employer, the satisfaction on whether the pay was good, the work environment was good, all these things without having to compromise yourself. So it's really about lifting the secrecy, lifting the nebulousness of it all and providing everyone with a tool that they can use. One of the other things that we spend a lot of time thinking about and formulating uh, as far as questions go, um, we wanted to make sure that we were addressing issues around gender, disability, race, um, any other sort of barriers that 
recruit that exists in discrimination in our workplace. Because one of the things that I think is at least interesting to me, and I think I will share that for all of the group, is we wanted to also see where are the discrepancies. There was just something released maybe last year around October. I believe the date is October 29th is the like Latinx women's payday. I think it's become what what that is now, what that's called. And it's basically there was a study that was done that said that for every dollar that a white man makes, Latinx women make 52 cents. And um, I think trying to figure out those discrepancies is extremely important. Um, because if we really want to create, again, a very sustainable and really diverse and equitable industry, we need to address money. We need to address pay. We need to address the problems that exist uh, with negotiation, connection. I mean, this goes much deeper than just this one individual job, right? It's like how many, you know, how many people get paid a lot of money and they're actually not very good at their jobs, but they just have the right connections or went to the right school because they were born with money versus people that are very, very skilled, can do a lot, but don't have those connections or maybe don't have that confidence to ask for that. And so one of the things that we wanted to find out with the survey was where are this, where are these discrepancies? And I think for VC, as VC starts to change its mission and become more oriented towards equity, it becomes incredibly important to see where the industry is not being equitable, to see which of these industry giants, small, big companies, how they're paying, who they're paying more to, who they're paying less to, and then what, what we can do as a collective to address those issues. Um, and so that was one of the main keys, I think, at least for me, and I think everybody else was really, really interested in figuring this out, not just from a, uh, let's see what each other's rates are, but let's also address some of the larger issues that are at play in our industry that we would like to change. Mm, yeah. So the site is live now. Um, so people can head over to pay.videoconsortium.org. Um, and both search rates and fill out the survey. You know, for those of us that, you know, went to journalism school or, uh, you know, video production programs, um, you know, sometimes those programs can focus a lot on the, the craft and less on the business side. And so, you know, we see this as, you know, one other key to, you know, helping people create a sustainable future out of, out of this work. Because um, if you can't sustain a business, it doesn't matter how good you are at your craft. Yeah. Um, great. Well, we will definitely put a link to that in the show notes. And um, thank you so much for thank you guys so much for taking the time to do this. Um, I feel like this conversation, I've seen it over and over again on the VC Facebook. And it, obviously that this episode is so overdue. So I think people will really will really take a lot from this. So thank you so much again. Rough Cut is hosted and produced by me, Jenny Butler, and Sky Dylan Robbins. Our original music is by Zach Wright. And the podcast is part of the Video Consortium, which is a global creative network and community that unites today's nonfiction filmmakers and video journalists. You can visit videoconsortium.com and we'd love for you to join our film family. 
And we love hearing from listeners. So if you'd like to send us a note, you can find us on Instagram at, at roughcutpodcast, or you can send us an email, podcast at videoconsortium.com. And don't forget to rate us and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe. Thank you and see you soon.